This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Muck Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Muck Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, it has been a very, very disappointing Easter weekend for West Bromwich Albion. One point from two games. Two games which Albion led in both of them. Pete, it's a it's a time for this sort of thing, but it seems like it's Albion's playoff push that needs resurrecting at the moment. Yeah, and I... Well, I really thought that if we don't pick up at least four points from the, the previous two games, then we would have been out of it. I think we've, in reality, we probably needed two wins. But yeah, after well, one point, um, and we somehow still seem to be just about within touching we, distance. We, we're actually closer. We're actually closer. That's the crazy thing. We've we we take one point. We're we we've we've we're we're actually one point better off than we were. Yeah, but the difference is that we've got a few more teams in between us now, so we've got a few to climb up above. Um, but yeah, it seems to be a miracle that we're actually still within touching distance of the playoffs if we do put a run of performances together. But at the minute, that seems very unlikely because we've just got a team that isn't performing. Um, Everything seems to lack energy. We've, I mean, importantly, we've got however many players out injured for the end for the rest of the season. Um, and well, we're we're recording this on Tuesday. Um, the the news is, is is just is just has dropped from the locals that Carl Bartley is a hamstring injury. So that could be that could be his season over. And Pete, we were just chatting off air, and we we were saying that in in the last few weeks, it has been O'Shea and Malumbi injured on international duty, O'Shea's season ended, Reach's season ended, potentially Bartley's season ended. You've had O.K. and Malumbi, as we say, out injured for for a period of time. You've had uh, Taylor played through an injury at uh, at the weekend. I mean, obviously, we'll put DK to one side because that was illness and there's nothing you can do about that. But, I mean, just in the last two weeks, that is... 
five or six injuries picked up either on the training ground or in matches, whether on international duty or for club. Now, you've got a big question somewhere along the line of the strength and conditioning and the fitness coaches. But uh, And you made a good point off air. It's whether you question the guys doing it now and whether we've pushed these players too hard now, which is the theory that some are coming up with and Corbran and his coaches are working them too hard. Or the alternative point of view, which you mentioned to me off air, which I have to say... I tend to buy into that it isn't that, but that the coaching under Bruce and a lot was said about how uh, when Bruce was at Newcastle, that his coaching sessions were like a holiday camp. And a lot of the players came out and said how they were, uh, the Newcastle players came out and said how they were worked much, much harder as soon as Eddie Howe came through the door. And there is, there's got to be a question there, Pete, of, Corbran may well not be the problem here and Corbran's coaches may well not be the problem here. But the problem might be that Bruce's coaches in pre-season and early on in the season did not set the, the fitness of these players up for the rigours of probably the most intense championship season there has ever been, given that we've had the World Cup break in it, which has condensed the championship into two blocks. Without having any inside knowledge, it's, it's extremely difficult to know whose fault it is. Whether uh, there's three, there's three possibilities here, isn't it? Either Corbrand's coaches are working the players too hard, or Bruce didn't um, d- didn't set them up properly for for the season, or the third is that we are incredibly unlucky, or I suppose the fourth option is that it's a combo of uh, of all of the above. It's hard to know, but I mean, I have to say from all the stuff that people come out and say about how relaxed Steve Bruce's coaching uh, coaching sessions were and fitness sessions, I, I tend to lean towards that one. I don't know about you. Yeah, I would probably agree with that, that it was probably a bit too too relaxed under Bruce and players weren't um, as fit as Corbran would have liked them to be when he came in. Um, but then I suppose Corbran does have to also take that into consideration when he's planning his training sessions and deciding how much workload to put on the players in training because he knows what the fixture list is like. He knows that he's got two games most weeks and and he's got a train in between that as well. So even if you do want to get your players as fit as you would like them, you probably have to take into consideration the fixtures that you've got to get through as well. So it's just, you know, it just increases the risk of injury. So it's, it's probably a mixture of everything, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it, Come next season and after a proper preseason under core run, he will have the players where he wants them to be. If he's wise. still here, if he's still here, that's true. If he's still here, but assuming he is, he'll get them where he wants them fitness wise for the start of the season. And um, it probably won't have to be as intense training during the season. And I mean, even if it is, they'll probably be in better condition to be able to withstand that without picking up these, these muscle injuries. And these injuries are horribly, horribly impacting us, Pete. I mean, obviously, we have dropped points in the in in the two games that we've had over Easter. We'll come to the granular detail on those in a moment. But I think the big one for me is that I think it was um, I think it was either Lewis Cox or or Johnny Drury actually put this out in the week before the game that the Rotherham game was the first time since Corbrand's first game in charge that he would have neither. Yokoslu or Malumbi in the midfield. And 
I think that's massive. I think that's absolutely massive. I don't think it's any coincidence that we've had two extremely disappointing results over those two games. It's also worth saying that over those two games, we have looked much, much more open at the back as well. I mean, we we we, we let uh, we we let in um, one point two xG against QPR, which isn't particularly high, but it's also it, it, it's also a little bit worse than what we've we've what we've been doing against relegation threatened teams at home, but against Rotherham we conceded a two point nine xG. So basically, Rotherham were thoroughly worth the three goals that they scored. To put that in perspective for you, that is our worst xG against of the season. It's worse than anything in Bruce's reign in any game. I mean, you've got, to, you've got a caveat with Bruce's reign that, OK, we conceded too many goals, but they were largely because David Button couldn't catch a cold. So to, to concede 2.9 XG in a game was just horrendous. And Malumbi has been a big, big loss. There's no two ways about that. But for me, Pete, the one is Yukoslu, because you lose that aerial presence out of that midfield. You use that you lose that simplicity of passing where he just he doesn't try and do anything overcomplicated uh, apart from the odd moment where, which i know you hate where he tries a hollywood ball but most of the time it's simple little four yard passes to somebody not very far away from him and he just keeps the ball but also when he brings the ball down he just uses his physicality and his body so well to shield it in there and this isn't me having a go at Taylor or Chalaber, or we will come on to them and their numbers in a little bit. But this is more about saying that we miss Yukoslu so much because Yukoslu is so good, not because the players who come in are bad. They have had bad games, and as I say, we will come to that. They they've both had pretty appalling games in the last two matches, but. Yukoslu, uh, I think you've, you. Th- it's very easy to st- to sit to sit on the negative side of these players are bad because they can't fill in for Yukoslu. I think, in reality, what you have to look at, Pete, is say Yukoslu is an exceptional footballer at this level who is far, far, far too good to be playing in the championship, and he, in terms of our team, is utterly, utterly irreplaceable when he's out, isn't he? Yeah, he's um he's been excellent this season. What he does with the ball is generally very simple. He just kind of moves it from one side to the other, and um he's best when he he doesn't try and do too much with it. As he said, there are times when um he appears to think that he's got maybe a bit more ability on the ball than he has, um and he tries passes that that don't come off. But when he keeps it simple and and just kind of moves it around and and acts as that that pivot in front of the defence that things can kind of moves can build up around him without him actually being too involved in the in the moves. That's when he's kind of at his best with the ball. Um and he does he has got a lot of confidence to to show for it as well, which which helps because he, he gets into positions where he can receive the ball and just even though he doesn't do too much with it, when he receives it in there it pulls the opposition out of position out of their position and out of their shape and then we can kind of move 
move forward around them. Um, because he's impossible to take it off, isn't he? He just doesn't get dispossessed. He just he just uses his body so phenomenally well. And people come and try and engage him, and they just take themselves out the game, don't they? Yeah, and that's that's why he's got that confidence to receive it in quite tight areas because um, he's, he's got such a good touch and can use his body so well to to shield it as you'd expect from somebody that does that quite regularly. There are times where he does lose it, almost loses it, and it can cost us, but it's it's definitely worth worth doing because he does it so well um, the vast majority of the time, and it really helps us. And then defensively, he's just extremely solid, isn't he? He's always up there with the most tackles, interceptions, everything, um, and he just protects that. He's protects so it. disciplined as well, Pete. You know, you know I like my average position map, and... Every time I look at the average position map for for Yukoslu, where he has the majority of his touches, he's as deep as the centre halves. He's he just screens beautifully. Yeah, and to Ferry breaks up counter attacks as well quite nicely um, because generally he is when we're in the final third, he's behind the ball and not getting too involved up there. So when teams do look to counter attack, he's usually there to to break it up early and, and protect us from that. So. He's basically a massive miss in in all aspects of the game, and has become one of the, the best defensive midfielders in the championship. I think this season. Well, the other thing is, Pete. You know, he's he's also a massive asset in both boxes aerially. I mean, you look at the goals we conceded against against Rotherham, the, the two Jordan Hugel goals. I have to beg the question: Do we concede those if Okay Yakoslu is on the pitch? Yeah, maybe not because. He is so good in the air. Um, I remember highlighting it, uh, particularly against Andy Carroll when we played Redden. Him and Daro O'Shea together, they just completely nullified Andy Carroll. And he's by far the best player in the air in the in the division. So if you can do that to Andy Carroll, then you know you stand a pretty good chance against um, defending against any other player in the league in terms of aerial duels. So yeah, I imagine he would have helped us a lot. Um, but then there were players in the box that are good in the air. I mean, DK, I think for the first one, was probably the player closest to, to Hugel, and, and he's very strong in the air as well. So, yeah, Yukushu probably helps us and helps deal with him in other stages of the game other than just set pieces and helps the centre-backs out in that way. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if we... You can't really say whether we can see the goals or not, but he definitely would have helped us because we did struggle in the air against Hugel. Well, and losing Dara as well, as you say, because, I mean, look, let's let's just take the natural natural transition onto this. I mean, you know, Semi Ajayi in that game against Rotherham has won one aerial in 57 minutes. I mean, this is against a team that puts a lot of high balls in against you. And he's won one header. He's won one header. And I'd like to caveat this by saying, Semi was much, much better against QPR. So let you know, it, always with balance, always with balance. Let's let you know, let let's not get on at a player for a performance in one particular game, but ignore the fact that he did improve in the next. And that is worth worth stating that I thought he, and I think it takes a degree of mental strength, and and mental strength is something this team is generally at the moment being accused of lacking, and I uh, and I understand why, and we'll come on to talk about that in a bit because it's something we've talked about a lot on this pod, and you you all know if you've been listening to this pod for any length of time, 
that that it's it, it's something that I buy into about this squad that that I don't think there's enough mental strength within within this group. But I thought it showed a level of mental strength from from Semi to come back and perform the way he did against QPR. That being said, Pete, that is one of the single worst centre-half performances I have seen from West Bromwich Albion player is his display away at Rotherham. And uh, the only thing that truly staggered me more than the, the way Semi played was that it took um, it took Corbram 57 minutes to bring him off. Yeah, he was really struggling. Um, and I think uh, basically any of the supporters could see that we were probably going to be better off with Carl Bartley. Um, facing up against Jordan Hugel. I think, yeah, I think most fans would have, if they were in charge, they would have probably hooked a dry at half-time and, and brought on Bartley in his place because we'd needed a bit more um, strength in the air because they were so direct and Hugel was just getting so much joy out of us with his physicality. And um, and Bartley's obviously stronger in the air than Ajay is. Um, but it wasn't just that, to be fair. It, he just had a really, really off game. He seemed to misjudge a number of the ball, a number of balls. Um, yeah, he seemed to struggle in general. So um, I'm not really sure. sure well, he why. struggled on the floor as well, Pete. I mean, it, it, some of his passing was was absolutely abysmal. And it and it and it goes for because uh, you talked about this a few weeks back when uh, when when Dara got injured, saying as much as we'll miss his physicality in there. He's the one who distributes from the back, and I I did the numbers on the back four the back four's pass percentages against uh, against Rotherham, sixty four percent, fifty seven percent, seventy percent, and seventy four percent. How do you have a back four with those numbers? Generally, your defenders should be the ones who who are passing the ball. I know we went a little bit longer against Rotherham, but nonetheless. There's got to, surely there's got to be somebody in there who who's passing it. It doesn't seem like without Dara, and Dara's not he ain't blooming Rio Ferdinand or uh, you know so, uh, Franz Beckenbauer or someone like that who can who who's who's wonderful on the ball. He, he, he not even but as you take him out that team and suddenly you don't seem to have anyone who can pass it. No, I mean of course you got to caveat with the fact that we were trying to be a bit more direct um, so longer passes and less likely to come off um, but, but are we were... being more direct because Dara's not there and well, he doesn't yeah. trust them to play short passes that is, that's the other question um, and is that why he played both Thomas Sante and DK um, yeah I mean in fairness to Ajay I think of all I think he only misplaced two passes that weren't long passes so yeah it, maybe it wasn't that bad but he just if you look at the number of passes that O'Shea usually has in a game um, when he plays for us, it's it's usually above 70, I think. So when you compare that to Ajay, who attempted 27 against Rotherham, it probably suggests that we weren't trying to, we weren't as um, comfortable with using him in possession. Um, and therefore, we did go a bit more direct. And it's probably the ability of Ajay on the ball was probably a big factor in the way that we decided to play. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a big, big loss, isn't it? And and the back four just seem just they just seem to really be struggling, Pete. I mean, Rotherham, as I say, two point nine xg, the worst of the season against QPR. We got that down to one point two. Obviously, the second goal is a total uh, total and utter freak. Um, 
just on that, I mean, Griffiths, I see he's getting some stick in some quarters. Personally, I don't really get that because what I, what I would say about that is, okay, you look at his numbers and he is ever so slightly should be conceding less goals per game than he is. I think it's, uh, I think it's 0.17 is, is, is the exact numbers per game that he is, uh, that, that he is conceding more than, but I mean, his clean sheet percentage is one of the top in, in the division. Um, he stops crosses very well. I don't think he's doing, I don't think he's doing particularly badly. His, 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 save percentage he's also uh, but but it, what what i really noted pete is that if you compare him to palmer he is facing a higher expected goals per shot ratio than either palmer or button did during their time in goal for the albion and my question to you is Griffiths, okay, is conceding slightly more than he should be. There's no doubt in that, um, and he has made a couple of mistakes. So we're, we're not going to we're not going to shy away from obviously the mistake at the weekend, the Blackburn goal on his debut. But he's a 21 year old goalkeeper. These th- these things are going to happen. Is there a massive difference between him and Palmer, or are Palmer's numbers better because he had? A settled back four of Furlong, O'Shea, Peters, and Townsend, with Malumbi and Yukoslu in front of him for basically every single game, and Griffiths has had one of those players, in fact, all th- three three of those players injured in each of the last three games. I think it is. You, you've got to, you've got to beg the question: Is it? Is it just is he just unfortunate in terms of the personnel? I do I do think to give my personal opinion, I think Palmer is a slightly better goalkeeper at the moment. Probably probably just down to age and maturity more than anything else. They're pretty even in terms of experience, in terms of games played, but obviously one is older than the other, and with that it should come a level of maturity and possibly a level of being able to cope with adversity. But I don't think Griffiths is massively worse than Palmer in any way, shape or form. And I think if you dropped Griffiths for the next game, which, by the way, I would not do, if you drop Griffiths for Stoke and put Palmer in, I think that with Ajayian instead of O'Shea, potentially still without OK in midfield, I don't think Palmer would be doing any better than than Griffiths is. I just think Griffiths has been exposed by the injuries that we've had. Well, yeah, he came in at a, and has played at a pretty terrible time, to be honest, because of those injuries. And we are um, conceding more chances than we were when we got Palmer in goal. So naturally, the goalkeeper is going to going to look a little bit worse when they're facing more sh- more shots from the opposition and, and bigger chances. You know, it's harder to be. It's much easier to be a goalkeeper for the team top of the league than it is for the team bottom of the league. Um, simply because you've got that more, you've got that better protect, protection in front of you. Um, so yeah, I, I think the difference between Griffiths and Palmer isn't massive from what we've seen so far. Um, obviously, it's still very early days for, well, for both of them in the Albion careers. They haven't really 
well, Griffiths definitely hasn't played for Albion before um, the start of this season. I'm not sure if Palmer got an appearance or two last season, but still, on the whole, they're, it's very early days in the career for Albion, so you can't judge too much. Obviously, against QPR, that was a big mistake um, from Griffiths, but again, he's I'd say in general, his distri- distribution has been very good, and he's he's looked very confident on the ball, and I think that is one of his strengths. So, one sloppy mistake there, it doesn't take away everything that he's done um, so far. You know, he's not going to do that very often, is he? Um, and and you've got to be patient with a lad so young as well, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then that's always the risk of having a goalkeeper that likes to play out. Um, is that if they do make a mistake, they're quite often the last man, and um, when you're the last man, it you know you pay a big price if you make a mistake. So I think, yeah, as you say, you've got to be patient with him. He's young. Well, Sam Johnston had one against. Uh, was it against Blackburn? I know it's slightly different where it, where he's come racing. It was Blackburn away at Ewood Park. He's come racing out his goal to try and clear it, and he's he, he's basically air kicked the blooming thing, and the, and the Blackburn players ran through and scored. We we won the game two one uh, that that day, but. It ha- you know, and look for whatever some people think of Sam Johnson. Sam Johnston was one of the best goalkeepers that has probably played in the championship in in the last sort of five to ten years. Had a brilliant game for Palace at the weekend. It happens to the best of us. Yeah, and he also had one against Carlos Corbran Huddersfield at home last season, where he ended up just smashing it into their striker, might have been Jordan Rhodes, and no, it's Danny Ward. Danny Ward, and it yeah, and it went into the net. So. There's always you. You take these risks when you're playing like that. Um, and you just hope that the way that playing like that is more beneficial than it is negative of the risks that you're taking. So, yeah, you've got to be patient with a young keeper. Um, I think, yeah, in general, he's been pretty good. I haven't had any complaints about him to be honest since he's come in. I think he's done well. Um, so I wouldn't be rushing. And it to, would it would have been him. a lot more at Rotherham if it weren't for him. By the way, yeah, made some big saves at Rotherham as well. So even when even when you conceded three, if I mean, as a keeper, it doesn't necessarily mean you've had a bad game when your team's given up as many chances as we did against Rotherham. It, yeah, I definitely wouldn't be rushing to drop him. I think just you know, give him a bit of time and just let him settle into the role at the minute. I mean, you talk about the goal against QPR. It, it look nobody's saying it's not Griffiths' fault. It is. Um, that being said, I mean, it's, it is. It's an awful back pass by, uh, by by Peters. He doesn't need to put as much on it. And I think I think Peters has panicked in that position as well, which is unusual for Eric Peters. Um I, I understand he's trying to keep the ball, but he's fizzed it back at his goalkeeper because he he's panicked. And I thought that was indicative of how how we were really from 2 0 up onwards on uh, on Monday that players were just panicking all over the pitch. Carlos Corbran talked about it in his post-match interview how we lost our composure on the ball and that has led to the goal. But that being said Griffiths has had an absolute mare. I mean, the 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 first touch is just abysmal. He's he he's he's played it onto his own shin and and played it into into Martin's path, and and then he's kicked it against him. He's unlucky. It could go anywhere. When it hits Martin, it doesn't. It goes straight in the back of the net. But as we say, these things happen. The kid will learn from it, and we move on. I think he's going to be a very very good goalkeeper. But what has been made a lot of, Pete, is that none of the Albion uh, the Albion players went back to the halfway line. None of them appeared to go over to Griffiths. Now, 
Jed Wallace defended him post match. He uh, he was asked about the incident by Rob Gurney, and he 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 said, "Look, he's a, he's a young man. It's not on him. It, it's it's down to senior players to protect him more. And it, you know it, this this current run of form, it's on the senior players to turn it round, not young men like like Josh Griffiths." And while I respect those words from from Jed, and I completely agree with them, why are players not visibly getting around Josh Griffiths. I mean, Josh Griffiths felt the need to go to the Smethwick end at full time and apologize to the fans. Now, I personally don't think any player needs to do it. Certainly not one as young as Josh Griffiths. You're a goalkeeper. You make a mistake. I respect the fact that he went and apologized, but, but he's not, it's not, it, it's not his fault that we've drawn that game two two. And we'll come to the reasons why we've drawn that game 2-2. But I, th- I think a lot of it is on the way the outfield players played, not on one goalkeeping mistake, because we should have gone on from 2-0 up after 13 minutes and won that game maybe 4 or 5-0, to be honest with you. And then if Griffiths drops a howler on the hour, then it makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. And I think that point can very, very easily get lost in the fact that it should not have been 2-1 at the moment he makes that mistake and therefore should not have been a decisive moment in the game. And I just wonder how much it says about the players, the way they reacted to that moment in the game, Pete, because we've spoke about the mentality of this group of players before. I still call it into question. I think it's getting better because I think we've brought in some good sorts into this squad i think jed wallace i know i've took some stick on on twitter people saying it's what you do not what you say that matters and i do understand that but when a player has to do a post-match interview he can't change what's happened on the pitch but he but he can come out and make excuses and speak in cliches or they can speak with honesty and integrity like like Jed Wallace did. And I respect him for conducting himself in an interview like that. Yes, of course, from that point on, he will then be judged on what he does. Does he, does he, does he back those words up with actions? That's what really matters. But in that moment, when he stood in front of a microphone, the only thing he can do is talk. He can't act on a pitch because the game is finished. But I, 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 so I liked what he said, but at the same time, and I think, uh, and I think Brandon has showed up to be a very, very good character around this group. I think DK is a, is a good character, comes across as extremely professional. I think Eric Peters, whilst he bottled that back pass on Monday, I think is, is a good pro. He certainly seems it, but you've still got a core group in there of players who, who don't seem to, who, who, who don't seem to, get going when the going gets tough. I worry whether Chalaber is another one of that type that we've, that we've brought into this, this group and um, we'll come to him in a moment, but he hasn't responded terribly well to coming into the side to fill the void left by Mullumby and Yukoslu. And I just wonder whether how the players were in that moment after Griffiths had made that mistake says more than it should do about the, the character of this group or, or 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 are we just letting Twitter make something out of nothing, Pete? I think something we spoke well something that Mark Albrighton spoke about when he joined in his interviews was that he's not really 
the kind of leader that goes screaming and shouting on the pitch and in the dressing room. He's the kind of leader that he likes to set an example and just kind of lead by example, work hard in training and work hard on the pitch and, you know, lead by example like that. But I wonder if maybe we need more leaders that are going to be more vocal and um, actually kind of drag players along when things aren't going right on the pitch. And you think of someone like Jake Livermore, who, granted, is... You probably wouldn't want it. Well, you definitely wouldn't want him playing week, every week at the minute, just because. Limited, I think, is the kind word you're looking limited. for. Limited. That is exactly the word I was looking for. Yeah. Limited um, in terms of his ability and his mobility now. Um, so he's not the player that you'd probably want on the pitch, but you'd. Yeah. I mean, if we could have a few. But of... then he's another one who's got injured in Reese. So, he, I mean, he's one we missed off the list when we reeled it off, uh, off um, earlier. And you've got to, you've got to ask the question. Would he'd probably be starting at the moment, wouldn't he, if he was fit? Yeah, I'd say he'd be in consideration, and yeah, like I'm. I think after the way Chalaber and Taylor played at, at Rotherham, I think he'd have started. I yeah, really do. I think we do just need some more characters on the pitch as well. Um, I think at the start of the season, we said that you don't need leaders to necessar- necessarily be. I think Roy Keane was the Roy Keane-like players was the example we use where they are going to be screaming and shouting, but. We do seem to just really lack vocal players on the pitch, and if we'd got a few players with Livermore's kind of personality, um, then it, I think it really would benefit us when things aren't going quite away. Because a lot of the time, it it just feels like we've not got anyone that is really setting the standard when things aren't going well and, and dragging us through those times. Well, it's worth saying, Pete, that um, the the four players who've worn the armband the most over the uh, over the course of the last twelve months are. Bartley, Yokoslu, Livermore and O'Shea. And they're all injured. Yeah, which, you know, obviously that is just, I mean, it's we've spoken about it already, injuries. It's just, we seem to, yeah, we seem to be getting really unlucky at the minute. It seems like half our squad's out injured and most of them being important players as well, which obviously only makes it worse, so leaders as well i mean it's not to me it doesn't really matter who wears the armband on on the pitch but it but but uh, it, these guys quite clearly from what you hear around the club the four that i've just reeled off are leaders are players that the other players look up to and we're being denied all of them yeah and i yeah i agree with that that you don't necessarily have to be the the man with the armband on to to be the man that's, that's leading and and pulling people up and, and pushing the team along. So I think you need a number of them on the pitch. Ideally, everyone is. But yeah, as you say, we seem to, well, we have lost a number of them to injury. And I think we are paying the price for not having enough leaders on the pitch um, during this this tough run of form. I think the other thing that we lack at the moment, Pete, is bravery. And look, it's very easy to throw around words words that aren't really quantifiable like leadership like bravery but i I, th- I think it's important to then go and try and quantify them we've just we've just talked about leadership and we've talked about the, the four players that are out injured who you would consider to be leaders and also the, the the lack of response to griffiths's mistake from the other players i think that's a quantifying of that lack of leadership. So I want to just try and quantify the lack of bravery that I think I'm seeing from us. Pete, we went 1-0 up against Rotherham. Besides that, we had 0.3 XG 
in the whole of the rest of that game. We had 1.1 overall, but 0.8 of that is the penalty. So we had 0.3 XG over the course of the piece against Rotherham. Now, given how much of that game, I think it was the 52nd minute we went 2-1 down, given how much of that game we were chasing it for, that's appalling. How are you not being brave enough to go and create chances? Because I stood on the concourse on Monday and I watched Blackburn chase the game away at Huddersfield. And as Blackburn equalised... I counted five players strung across the edge of their 18-yard box as that ball that ball went into their penalty area. And obviously, the, the, um, the I think it's Brereton Diaz wins the first header, and then um, I think it's Ranking Costello who taps it in. And that all comes from just bodies in the box, volume. Now, we've got Jed Wallace, one of the best deliverers of, deliverers of a football in this division. Why aren't we getting enough bodies in there, especially when we're behind? And equally... I look at our numbers against QPR on Monday. After our second goal went in, in the next 28 minutes, so give or take, all but half an hour, we had one shot. Now, this is a team in QPR that are completely and utterly devoid of any confidence, can't win for Toffee at the moment, are tumbling down that league table like like the boulder in Temple of Doom chasing Indiana Jones. It, they, they are in a mess and they've just gone 2-0 down inside the 13 minutes. They're there for the taking. You, you, at that point, you turn the heat up on them and you go, take the game to them and you go and win that game 3 or 4-0 because this isn't Middlesbrough. This isn't Middlesbrough where you go 2-0 up and it's okay to sit back a little bit because you know Middlesbrough are a really good side and you don't want to be too over adventurous this is a side in QPR that are there for the taking and you know that if you keep going at them their fans will turn they're uh, uh, you know and they had a good following in the away end of the Smethwick and and the and the, the the players will just crumble because they've crumbled week after week after week but what do we do? We don't have a. Sh- we have one shot in half an hour after the goal, and I mean there was one point where the Albion crowd roared, absolutely roared at Darnell Furlong because he got the ball out from the back and he literally just stood still with it at his feet for three, four, five seconds. And I mean this is two nil, but still the fans don't want to see that. It's a total and utter lack of bravery, and um, you can't turn on, turn intensity on and off like a switch. If the intensity goes completely out of your play, which it did on Monday, you can't turn it back up. And people will say, "Ah, oh, but this has been coming because that's that's how it was against Wigan and Huddersfield." I partly agree against Huddersfield. Against Wigan, I don't agree. I think we did our best to break down a stacked defence. And uh, and when after we'd scored the goal, I thought we still tried to go for uh, go for another one. I thought there was intensity and and bravery in a, in our play. I I thought I saw no bravery against Rotherham. I saw a team that was that knew we couldn't defend and was terrified of getting absolutely pumped. And against QPR, I saw a team that had gone 2-0 up and and 
looked like they collectively looked at their watch and went, how long's left? Can we can we see out 77 minutes just knocking the ball ac- across the back four? You can't do that. You've got to play the game. You've got to play the game. You've got to take the game to these teams. And I'm sorry, you go 2-0 up against QPR after 30 minutes. There is no excuse, none whatsoever, for not going on and winning that game 3 or 4-0. And we've brought it on ourselves. Jed Wallace called their first goal world-class. It is a very good goal. I don't disagree with that. But the only reason that goal happens is because we've got no intensity, no pressure on the on the ball. We've just let them move the ball out to the far side. There's no pressure on Dykes, who's got across the defender to get, a, get in a lovely header. It's appalling. And the, the second goal happens because there's no intensity to our play. That Peters gets the ball out on the far side. He's panicked. He's seeing no options up front. So rather than being able to play the ball into a channel for someone like Brandon Thomas Asante to run onto, what does he do? He launches a ball back towards Griffiths, who miscontrols it, and we concede. We are bringing these things upon ourselves, and it comes back, coming bringing this full circle, because I know I've been talking for quite a while now, Pete, it comes back to my original point, total and utter lack of bravery, because there is nobody who at 2-0 against QPR, there was nobody that wanted to get on the ball and make things happen. Jed Wallace did it a little bit, and I will defend Jed Wallace, and I don't, uh, I don't care. I know there's people out there saying, oh, Jed Wallace has been rubbish since January. First of all, look at the data. That's not true. There has been a drop off in his performances, but not to the level some people are saying. Jed Wallace... Um, took players on more than anybody else on Monday, and he and he beat his man five out of six times. So Jed Wallace was the only one out there trying to make things happen. You look at everybody else's data and in an attacking sense, and it is garbage. And you look at everybody else's data in an attacking sense. In fact, include Jed Wallace in this because he was rubbish against Rotherham. Everybody's data in an attacking sense was total and utter garbage against Rotherham and we need players to start being brave on the ball taking games to to teams and where we're chasing uh, chasing games get in the blooming box because as I say I stood on the concourse watching that Blackburn game and I I turned to my dad and I said why don't we do this when we're chasing a game, when we're trying to get a winner or trying to trying to get an equaliser? Why, when Jed gets it out on the right, is there not four or five players strung across the penalty area waiting for that ball into the box? It never, ever happens. And I tell you what, Pete, for me, it's a lack of bravery. It's a lack of wanting to take responsibility. Yes, some of it will be instruction from Corbran, and we know he can be a cautious manager, but at times... Players need to just take it upon themselves to get in the penalty area and try to score a goal, and they need to be braver. Well, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with the fact that if you go 2-0 up against the QPR side that we came up against, the way that they've been struggling in the league, um, you go 2-0 up that early on, you've got to put it to bed shortly after. Um, You've got to score a couple more and really make a performance out of it. And if if we had done that, then it probably would have helped the intensity in other games as well, because it you know, say we'd put four or five past them, the fans would have loved it. Um and it would have that would have carried on into the next game. There'd have been more there'd have been a better atmosphere from the fans and I can only imagine that helps to bring the intent intensity for the players as well, which we seem to have lacked. 
So well, that's, in- sorry, Pete, just to jump in there, that's a really good point because, look, the atmosphere was extremely flat um, against QPR. And, I, look, I, I, I know I was critical on Twitter of it and I've, I've, I, I knew what was going to happen after I was critical of it on Twitter. I knew people would come back at me and have a go. I, I kind of expected that when I tweeted it. I tweeted at half time when we were 2-1 up, because I heard at 2-0, somebody boo one of our players. Now, for me, that is ridiculous. You know, I I don't really agree with booing players mid-game anyway, although I'll I'll, I'll be honest enough to admit that there are rare occasions, particularly, particularly towards the end of last season, where I probably did do it myself. However... To boo your own player at 2-0, I think, is crackers. But that being said, I get why the fans are... I'm I'm desperate, desperate for more of an atmosphere at the Hawthorns. And Ainsworth actually said after the game that some of the the, the negative feeling that, that was clearly building around the Hawthorns towards the Albion players spurred the QPR players on to get a result. Now, whether that's true or not, or whether that's just Ainsworth having a bit of a dig, I don't know. Uh, so I'm desperate for the be to be more of a positive atmosphere around the Hawthorns. But equally, I'm going to, you know, I am going to defend the fans a bit here, despite what I said on Twitter, that it is so hard to get engaged with a game when there's such a total and utter lack of intensity from the players. And I don't agree with some of the people that say we've seen this for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think we've seen a gradual drop off. I thought Wigan, we were we were we were really good and we were intense. I thought Huddersfield less so. Millwall, I thought we looked scared of them to a certain extent until DK came on when we were much better. But Rotherham, we just looked terrified of our own shadow. And QPR, we did not know what to do at at two nil. And I think it is. I, I think you've whilst. Protecting a lead, yes, is fine. Your home fans should be an asset. They should be a real powerful thing for you. And by being so slow and so ponderous and and, and totally lacking any intensity, you kill that atmosphere that can, can be a weapon for you in the game. You kill it. And that's that, that for me is what happened... On Monday, as I say, I don't agree with with the fella I heard behind me throw a boo out at 2-0. Not one bit. I'm not condoning that one little bit. But I do get why people were struggling at 2-0 to rouse themselves and bring their voice into the game. Because when you see Darnell Furlong just stand there, just stand still with the ball at his feet for three, four, five seconds how does that motivate you as a supporter to, to to really show intensity when you're seeing none from the players? Yeah, exactly. Um, it kind of works in both ways, doesn't it? That if the players, are, you know, show the intensity and, you know, show urgency and look like they want to be there and, and go and score a few goals, then that's going to help the atmosphere from the supporters. Um, but then that atmosphere from the supporters is going to help the players um, produce that kind of level of intensity so it's it's kind of a circle and it needs to start somewhere because it works in the opposite as well that when the atmosphere is negative it must be hard for a player to get themselves up for it and show the energy that the fans want to see so we do need better um, a better atmosphere inside the Hawthorns but that isn't just on the fans to deliver 
Um, I think the players have got. There's to an element there. of what which came first, the chicken or the egg, about it, isn't the Pete? Really? Yeah, precisely. So it's one way or another, it's got to improve. But I think it, it, you know, it's on both the players and and the supporters. Um, and if that can improve, then the intensity should hopefully improve as well. Because it's, I think, there's a difference between um, cover and wanting to be being cautious and patient um, than there is with just a lack of intensity. I think you can be patient but still have the intensity there. But at the minute we seem to, I think in on the whole, Corbran's tactics that the Albion have generally been, we've been very patient on the ball, but we don't seem to have the intensity that we did back in you know January and February. So it's, yeah, I think you can distinguish. Well, well you and I highlighted that, like the fullbacks getting in the box and uh, uh, earlier on, and and some and the and the way like Malumbi was joining up with uh, with Wallace on on the right hand side and creating overloads down there. I don't feel like I again. I uh, the Wigan game, I felt we had it, but since then, I just don't feel like we've seen those sorts of things happening anywhere near as much as they were, Pete. No, um. I thought in the first 10 minutes against Rotherham, it looked like there was quite, the intensity was back, but then it kind of, it, I mean, it quickly dropped off. So I don't really know what it was there. Um, but yeah, as you say, we were, I mean, throughout his whole time with us, Corbin has been very patient, but towards the start of the year, we were attacking when we were going forward. And if there was a, an opportunity to go forwards quickly, we'd do it quickly and we'd, you know, we'd get forward quickly. Or if there was a chance to win the ball back, um, in the final third, then we'd press aggressively. Um, but at the same time, in the same games, we would also be slow with our passing, but that's just patience rather than a lack of intensity. So it's, yeah, there's, I think there's clearly been a change in, in that from when Corbyn first came in. I don't know if it's pure number of games that players have been playing. Um, just, do you, you know, do, tiring do, them which, out. which do you think it is? Do you think, do you think it's out, outright tactical instruction from Corbyn or do you think it's fear? from the players in games because Corbran is being quite critical of our intensity post-match, but then, I mean, but then nothing changes game, game in, game out. So it, it just, it just makes me wonder where the root of the problem is at the moment. Well, I think, I don't think it's the tactics. I think if you look at, if you could, we can compare Corbran's Albion to Ishmael's Albion, for example, then you'd, you'd say we, well, it's almost the complete opposite in terms of, Corbyn were very patient. Ishmael we were very aggressive and wanted to win the ball back high and showed energy there. And the good bits of under both managers, we were we've shown intensity. Yeah, we've shown intensity. I think even when we've been patient under Corbyn, we still have the intensity when we do go forward. And um, and well, when we're going back as well. So I think in the past, well, in the past couple of months ago, yeah, the intensity was definitely there. Um, and that's since dropped off. I think it's probably more down to um, the players and whether that's because they're tired um, because they've played so many games and maybe the training's too intense. Um, but I'd say it's more down to the players than it is the manager. Yeah, and I, th- I think as well, I mean, it worries me, Pete, that, that, that also in the last couple of games, we've lost the shot count. Now, I know that's not the be-all and end-all, but... That's something you never see from from Albion teams. We we tend to we we tend to create shooting opportunities. We tend to we tend to have more shots than we give up, and yet we're we're losing the, we're losing the shot count now in games. 
it's uh, and uh, I mean just just to put it into perspective against QPR, bearing in mind we obviously we went we went two one down. Uh, sorry, we got to we ended up at two two in that game. From that point, after fifty nine minutes, we didn't have a single shot on target. Now, for me, that that's that's got to be somebody taking responsibility. There was there was one there was one point, and I'm gonna uh, you know I'm sure there's a few Albion fans listening who will who will remember the, this moment. There was one point where John Swift got the ball. I'm pretty sure it was Swift, and it, they, we've we've actually worked quite a nice position out on the out on our right hand side. Swift's come inside and it was by no means a prime shooting opportunity, but there was a shooting opportunity there. And all the fans have shouted shoot. And he's faked to shoot. He's decided against it. He's checked back inside and he's ended up going back out to Furlong. And Furlong's ended up going all the way back to Ajayi and Peters at centre half. Whilst I, I realise that if you shoot constantly from low percentage positions, that you are not going to win games of football. You've got sometimes you've got to buy a ticket, haven't you, to win uh, to win the lottery? And I just think that there comes a point where some players have got to take responsibility. You know, I think back to Taylor against Reading away, just running through and having uh, and just having that shot, taking that shot. I think back to the whole game, the first game we won of the season that comes from just players going right. Look, they they they're defending their penalty area here, so we're just going to have shots from from the edge of the box and and shock horror a few fly in i i just think that the players at this point have got to give the fans something to get to get excited about because it's all well and good saying ah well if you shoot from th- those kind of areas you're not going to score goals okay but you're not going to score a goal by going back to your center halves either are you no and that might be something that's more to do with Corbran rather than the players because as we've said, he's very patient and, and likes to control games, so not give up possession particularly easy, um, which having a shot from outside the box would do. But then I think again you've got to you've got to take into consideration who you're playing. If a team's gonna sit deep and not show too much on the ball and also give it away quite cheaply, then you can probably afford to, to take more shots from lower value areas because you know that you're probably not gonna struggle too much to actually get the ball back and get under control of it again. So it depends who you're playing, what the situation is, and who the player is as well. I mean, someone like John Swift, he, we've seen that he can hit a ball from range and, and score from a long shot. So at some point, I'd say you've got to give him some freedom to actually do that. And, well, yeah, just have a go and try his luck. And, you know, if he does it does it 10 times, and maybe one of them flies in. Because I'm telling that, you now, if that ball goes five yards over the crossbar, that does doesn't even get a bead of sweat on the on the on the goalkeeper's brow, the fans will still applaud it, Pete. Well, yeah, just for for having a go. Um, and like I say, he's he's got someone. Well, John Swift has got the ability to score from range, so I think yeah, you've got to maybe give the players. A, well, in my opinion, I think you've got to give the players a bit more responsibility to maybe take those decisions on themselves rather than just try and keep the ball and keep it in control of it and work a really a really good create a really good chance which um I mean the two goals we scored were were both big chances but um we didn't really offer much in terms of chance creation from open play or even after 
even after yeah. the first couple of goals in QPR. So sometimes you do, yeah, as I say, you've got to let the players um, try the luck, I think, when you've got players like John Swift in your squad. Before we finish, Pete, I, I do want to sort of slightly backtrack uh, a little bit. We talked about how much we're missing OK Yokoslu earlier and I, we actually had a message um dur- during the week um it was it was after the after the Millwall game where somebody tweeted us and and said you know would you mind actually doing the data on on Taylor Gardner Hickman and and I responded to them and I said look it's not really fair to do the data on Taylor Gardner Hickman at this moment because all he's had really is uh, under Corbran is fragments of uh, of games which doesn't give a fair picture but I said the next time he starts a game we will do the data on Taylor Gardner Hickman. So I'm going to live up to that promise, but also I think I'm going to, I think we need to bundle this in together with the data on Chalaba and talk about how those two have shaped up as replacements for Yukoslu and Malumbi. And look, buckle yourself in because this ain't going to be pretty. Um, they've both, they've both been dreadful, haven't they, Pete? I mean, uh, Taylor, I, I hate to say it because I, I, lo- I love Taylor Gardner Hickman, and, and we we've we've spoke very positively about Taylor in midfield on this pod in the past. But Taylor's Taylor's data is actually worse than than um, than Chalibur's. I mean, against QPR, he had a low pass accuracy. He had uh, he had no shots, one key pass. Um, didn't make any dribbles, which is something that he's done in the past. He's he's actually driven us forward. He lost the ball five times. Um, he did he did do, make three shot creating actions, which is basically three actions which resulted in in somebody having having a shot. And he wasn't. In fact, he was even worse against Rotherham. Um, he just didn't do anything of uh, uh, anything of any, any real quality note um again low pass accuracy no key passes no dribbles won a few shots but didn't uh, sorry wouldn't won a few tackles but didn't have didn't have a shot and and he seems to have a tendency as well to play a bit of a blind pass where he's where where he you know he just doesn't really look at where he's playing it we do have to caveat taylor's numbers against qpr with the fact that, as we understand it, he was carrying an injury for that game. He was struggling a bit in the build-up to it, and he was not fully fit for the QPR game. But there's very little excuse for his performance against Rotherham. And Chalaba's not a lot better. Um, again, poor pass accuracy in there, which, you know, when you look at Yukoslu's numbers, his pass accuracy is always high. Chalaba does win a lot more aerial duels than than Taylor. I mean, he won three against uh, against Rotherham, but equally, it, it, that doesn't even come to compare to what Yukoslu does in there. I think the problem with both of them is, I think either one of them would actually look okay alongside okay. I think Taylor at the moment is the one I wouldn't be playing. And as I say, it pains me to say it. I'm not going to get on the kids' back because, again, people need reminding. He is a young man learning his game, and I'm not I'm not going to scapegoat him for performances here. But equally, I'm not going to lie and say that the data says something that it doesn't. It's, it's screaming that Taylor Gardner-Hickman has had two extremely poor games over the Easter period. And based on the data is less worthy of his place in the team than even Chalaba, who has also had two extremely poor games. But at the same time, 
I'm always going to caveat it with he's a young man. You've got to be patient with him. The problem is, Pete, at this point in time, with any chance we've got of the playoffs hanging by an absolute thread, we haven't got time to be patient, have we, with with, with somebody like Taylor who does need to learn and develop. I think he's got all the assets to be an extremely good player and definitely be a central midfielder. The biggest thing he's got to improve on, for me, is learning when to play it simple, when to just retain the ball. You cannot be getting dispossessed as many times as he lost the ball against QPR. lost the ball five times. You can't do that in central midfield. You just can't. We were critical when Jed Wallace's numbers were in those uh, in, in that kind of area when he played centrally against the likes of Burnley. And I'm just I'm going to be just as critical of Taylor. You cannot lose the ball that much. Say whatever you like about Chalobah, but he doesn't lose the ball anywhere near as much as Taylor Gardner Hickman does. And that for me is why if you get one player back out of your your Koslu and Malumbi. The one who drops out for me is Taylor, not Chalaber. Ideally, you drop them both because I think uh, I think they're both playing poorly and they're both struggling in that midfield without somebody like OK to just dominate things. And as I say, I think you might see a different performance out of Gardner Hickman or Chalaber if they had Yukoslu alongside them. But if, as I say, if you're getting one out of Malumbi or Yokoslu back fully fit. Obviously, Malumbi is the more likely one to be back because he came on as a sub against QPR. If you only get one of them back to starting fitness, for me, it's it's Taylor that has to drop out because uh, I think he. I think at this point in time, I think given time to develop, he will be an he will be a very good player. But at this moment in time. I'm afraid he's a liability, Pete. Yeah, he's um he didn't he's not had a good couple of games, um, to be fair. And as you say, it's difficult because he's still very young and um it's also not a position that he's actually I know it seems to be his favourite position now, but it's not really a position that he's grown up playing. Um as far as I'm aware, he's always been more of a winger than a, a central player or even a fullback, so and it's probably one of the most unforgiving positions to learn as a young player. I mean, even 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 really really even great um, central midfield players like like Steven Gerrard, for example, actually started some of their formative games in more forgiving positions like wide or at fullback. Um, it's actually not. A lot, a lot of central midfielders start somewhere else, and as they've grown in maturity, get moved into central midfield. Taylor is trying to learn it from a very young age, and 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 you do have to caveat it with with that. But like I say, we're just not in a position to drop points because somebody's learning their trade. No, that's very true. Um, that's kind of the thing that you can accept with um, under twenty three and twenty one football. Uh, but not when you you play in senior football and and the points actually matter. Um, so it's a difficult one there. But um, I think the other issue that you've got to consider is that he's coming into a very unsettled side. We've had a number of injuries that we've mentioned plenty of times already today, um, and it's very different coming into a side that is not settled and hasn't got. A, if he was like the only player coming in, the only change to a starting eleven was him coming in, then I think he'd find it a lot easier. 
because everyone else kind of knows their roles, knows who they're playing with, and has that understanding. And I think and it playing would alongside be... a player he's never played alongside before in Chalaber. I mean, if he was playing alongside Livermore, you might actually see a better performance from Taylor. Yeah, and that, he's also. I think he's playing a very similar way, uh, role to what Jason Malumbi has been playing, which is probably something that he's not used to. That out of possession, he's you know comes central and plays uh, close to Chalaber and defends those central areas. But when we've got the ball and as we're moving up the pitch, we kind of want him to drift out wide and, and support the team there. So it's I think it's a lot to to take in and and it almost a big ask for him to come in and, and be to perform really well. But at the same time, we can't afford for him to not come in and perform well. So I'd say I'm, I'm kind of understanding of him not um, putting in brilliant performances, but at the same time, you can't, when we're fighting for, well, fighting for the playoffs, if you can still say that, then we can't afford well, to... Well we, well, we are. I mean, whether whether we deserve to be or not is is a whole other debate, but 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 we are, Pete. I mean, we're, we're five points off the playoffs with a game in hand on Millwall. If If we were to go and beat Sheffield United in our game in hand, assuming obviously we keep the status quo up until that point, we're two points off Millwall. So we, we are in this, whether we don't deserve to be. And if we keep playing like we are, we won't be in it for very long. But the fact of the matter is we are in it with with six games to play. Yeah, and it's the stage of the season, especially. Um, the stakes are so high. And as much as you can, you know, try and explain why the performance hasn't been good enough from Taylor Gardner Hitman, you still can't afford for the performance to to not be good enough because everything matters so much at the minute. Um so I think I would probably agree with you that if and when Mullumby comes back then he'd be the one to be dropped. But I think it would be a bit more of a difficult decision. Um if Yakuzli was the first one to come back. Um because I I don't think Chalibur's impressed me particularly since he's joined. Um he might be a bit more secure in possession but he doesn't have the qualities that Gardner Hitman does in terms of the energy and I think if we are going to get our intensity back then Gardner Hitman is more likely to help us do that than Chalibur is um, and I think he's also offers more Do you think Taylor pitch. would play better alongside Yukoslu than what than what we're seeing at the moment? Do you think part of why Taylor is so poor is that Chalibur's so poor and probably equally Chalibur's partly so poor because Taylor's so poor their, their poor performances are actually feeding each other's as it were well, yeah, and as I say, I think if he'd come into a squad where he was the only change and he was playing, if he just, if Gardner Hitman had just come in for, say, Malumbi into our strongest side and Yukushli was playing alongside him and he'd got, you know, Jed Wallace in front of him and John Swift playing as, te- as a 10 then and everything was the same, then I think he'd look a lot better. He'd have more protection um, and he'd, I think he'd just have more options on the ball and receive the ball <clears throat> under probably less pressure, just have yeah more protection and more options. So I think the game becomes a lot easier when when you come into a settled side that's performing well, and that certainly hasn't helped his performances in the last couple of games. Just before we finish, Pete, obviously Stoke away is the next game on on Saturday. Other than central midfield, which obviously. It's a decision point. I'm not, I'm not sure he's actually got that many decisions to make because he's so short of players that I, I don't think, I don't think, uh, I mean, he's basically only got four defenders. I mean, that was, that was emphasized by Ethan Ingram being on the bench against, uh, against QPR on Monday. And if Bartley is out for some period of time, which it appears like he might be, obviously Brian coming back from basically a year out injured 
more than a year, I would say. We, we, we've we basically got no defenders. So he's going to have to pick the only four defenders that we have fit. I think we've we've both said it. If Yukoslu is fit, if Yukoslu and Malumbi are fit, they come back into the central, central midfield. There's no question about that. Obviously, whether he goes with DK or Brandon Thomas Asante is 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 a is a question of itself. I think, but I don't think either massively weakens us. I think they both have their qualities, but they both have very different qualities. I think quite possibly I'd go with Brandon just purely on the basis that sometimes players fancy against certain teams. And of course, Brandon scored that absolutely magnificent goal against Stoke at the Hawthorns earlier in the season. So I'd I'd probably be tempted to play Brandon for that reason. But I think the big question for me is what he does out left. Because, I mean, he, uh, and I feel so sorry for Corbran here. He has been decimated in that injury, in that area. It's crazy. He starts off with Phillips getting out for the season. So he goes out, of, uh, he, he changes his transfer plans to try and get somebody in. He thinks he's got Amari Hutchinson coming in from Chelsea. That falls through in the last minutes of deadline day. He's brought Albrighton in, but then Albrighton, as we have seen, cannot play on the left. He then, play, uh, but he recognises that. So, But he's starting with Dean Garner anyway. So Grady's playing out there. Then Grady gets injured for the season, but he still doesn't think Albrighton can play out there. So he plays Reach out there for a couple of games. Then Reach gets out for the season. And in the end, he's ended up at the weekend playing Albrighton on the right because he doesn't believe Albrighton can play on the left. And neither do I, by the way. But the problem with that is he then moves our best right-sided player over to the left-hand side in Jed Wallace and Jed doesn't have as good a game because although Jed beat his man a lot against against QPR, what he didn't do is actually manage to get the kind of crosses in that he usually does because he's on the wrong side. And I think it's a big, big decision for Corbran as to what he does against Stoke. Does he, because with all these injuries on the left-hand side, does he stick with what he's got and play Albright and right, um, Wallace left. Does he move Wallace back onto the right hand side and play Albrighton in a position that he just knows he's not very good at? Does he put Grant back in, who probably is the most natural player we've got in that position? But let's be honest, he hasn't fancied Grant one little bit since uh, since he's been manager of West Bromwich Albion. Or do you play Brandon out on that left hand side and start with Brandon and uh, DK? which is what he did against Rotherham and it didn't work. Or the, I suppose the only other solution is you push Swift out on that left-hand side and start somebody like Rogic through the middle. But then for me, that's the other one that I don't want to see happen because it nullifies John Swift as, as our other best attacking player. I just don't think he's as good when he's out on the left. It's that left-hand side of the front three, Pete, is a massive massive headache for Corbran at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, and as we keep repeating, it's it's definitely not helped by the number of inju- injuries we're picking up and the number of left-wingers we've lost to injury. Um, very difficult one to choose because of the... I think I don't think there's any standout player that deserves a spot and each player has got their individual quality, so it's probably going to be more of a case of what Corbran and his team see from the opposition. So, 
um, for example. Sorry, I was just going to say the one, the only one I didn't mention there, and it it, it is an option, is take a gamble on Joe Van Malcolm. But then that's probably too big of a gamble at this stage of the season with such high stakes. And is he? I mean, I can't say I know too much about him. Uh, I know he's very attacking and more of a forward than a defensive-minded player. Um, but is he going to be any better than Carlin Grant is? I'd be very surprised. But yeah, I think it's more going to be what they see in in Stoke um, from their pre-match analysis. Um, I mean, off the top of the, my head, I know that I remember watching Stoke against Blackburn and um, their right wing back. I think he got a couple of goals and was really threatening going forward. And was often uh, is that Hoover? Hoover, yeah, uh, wing back. Um, and was often unmarked, unmarked when he was getting into the penalty area. So, I mean, if that's something that he regularly does, um, he was certainly doing it in this one game that I watched. But if he regularly does that, then Copper might think, okay, we need somebody who's going to be the most likely to stay switched on and, and track him all the way and stay with him and try and limit that threat. I suppose in that case, you'd probably put Albrighton in, wouldn't you, uh, on that left-hand side? Yeah, you'd say so. Um, if Reach was fit, then he'd probably be an option. But yeah, Albrighton's, well, either him on the, the left or Wallace on the left. Um, For me, Pete, that's the one thing I don't want to see. Is I, 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 I just, whatever we do, I want to see Wallace on the right, Swift in the 10. And end of discussion. I think they are too immovable players for me because they are we we talk about how our threat has dropped off in recent games well it doesn't help when you start shifting jed wallace all over the gaff which is what we've done in 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 recent weeks and i i think i i think between in the last six games assuming both of those two players are fit and i know there's some people who think john swift is is having poor games it's a similar conversation to to jed wallace his form has not been as good but he is still it is it, you look at all the numbers and all of our most attacking most progressive play is coming through swift and wallace swift and wallace swift and wallace every single week you play those two players in their best positions End of discussion for me, Pete. I, I don't know whether you agree with that. Yeah, I think obviously Wallace is much more threatening on the right when he can. Um, he's more comfortable swinging in crosses and and yeah, he just looks a lot better down the right than he does down the left. Um, so I think I would tend to agree that you put Wallace and Swift as two as your first names on the two of the first names on the team sheet and get them in their best positions and then you fill in fill in the rest. And I think if I had to guess, you I would probably go with Albrighton for the Stoke game out on the left. Um, mainly because of what we've just spoken about, about it's probably going to be the most switched on and most focused defensively and support us in that way. And we've seen that Corbran isn't, doesn't take too many gambles, so he's probably going to go with something that is is going to be what we consider to be the safest option. Well, of course, that remains to be seen uh, as Albion travel to Stoke on Saturday. Stoke, otherwise known as the Last Chance Saloon, because I really do think that's that, that's pretty much where Albion are in at the moment. That we 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 are going to need some run of form between now and the end of the season to keep our playoff hopes alive. But let's not forget, we won nine out of ten at the start of Corbrand's reign. So such runs are not without precedent under this manager. Obviously, we weren't decimated with injuries at that point, but nonetheless, it's the hope that kills you in it. We will, of course, be back after that Stoke game. As I said uh, on the previous pod, 
from this point onwards, for as long as the season has meaning within it, we will try our absolute best to do pods after after every game. They might be a little bit shorter than than usual if we do do that. At the point at which, if that point comes, of course, that we mathematically can't make the playoffs, we will, of course, uh, where where there's midweek pods, we might bundle two in uh, two in together because you know how much can you say about games that that start to start to lose a little bit of meaning and if that point does come then much as we did last season we will start to look ahead to next season probably analyze some more of the financial stuff that's going on as well so there will still be plenty uh, to talk about but for the time being the plan is and the hope is that Corbrand's boys keep this season alive that we live up to the words that Jed Wallace came out with in the interview and respond in the correct manner. And we start winning games and keep the dream alive. That begins at Stoke on Saturday. We'll speak to you after then, hopefully to talk about an away win. Wouldn't that just be the thing? But until then, thanks for listening and up the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered. By fans.